Welcome back to Dr. Dave on Call. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, Today we have a special episode. We are going to continue to focus on our COVID-19 video podcast series, and we are going to be speaking with an individual who had COVID-19 and was seriously affected by the virus um, and has a wonderful story to tell, a very uplifting story, and that... um, his journey with uh, both his family, being apart from his family, and um, the impact COVID-19 has had on both him and the people around him. So we are really fortunate to speak with Pastor Andrew Cofield today. He is from Aurora, Illinois, and um, he has a wonderful story to share about his uh, experience with COVID-19 and the journey that he went on from both... um, sickness and illness and hospitalization um, and, and to recovery too. So it's a, it's a pleasure to speak with uh, Pastor Andrew Caulfield today and uh, let's, uh, let's begin. Today, uh, Dr. Dave on call, we have um, a, a wonderful guest, Pastor Andrew Caulfield. He is a COVID-19 survivor. Uh, Pastor Andrew is a uh, a youth pastor in Aurora, Illinois, um, and he also owns this creative marketing company called Spark Innovation Solutions, and is a proud father of a two-year-old boy named Carson. Um, pastor Caulfield, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Um, why don't you briefly just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, you know, your family, who you are, where you're from, uh, for, for our guests. Yeah, I'm originally a native of the great state of Michigan been living in Illinois for six years now. I've been in ministry uh, for a very long time, uh, ever since I was a teenager. But I'm uh, the husband of Chelsea. Uh, my wife is a graphic designer uh, here in the Aurora area. And as you said, uh, I've got an awesome two-year-old boy who is full of energy. He could give the Energizer Bunny a run for his money. Uh, we love to travel. Uh, we love people. We love uh, socializing, uh, being around uh, friends. Uh, fortunately, family's uh, distant. My wife's family's in Georgia. My family, of course, is in Michigan. But uh, we love Chicago, love this area. And uh, yeah, that's a little bit about me. Well, we appreciate you being on our show today, especially in light of the, the COVID-19 pandemic, and especially given your uh, story surrounding COVID-19. Um, and that's why we wanted to bring you on. Um, take us through as a COVID-19 survivor, um, walk us through, let's start from the beginning and sort of your initial symptoms that you were experiencing and, and, and how that felt for you and uh, kind of to the point where you felt, okay, maybe this is a little bit more serious. Take us through not only just sort of the initial symptoms, but give us a little background too leading up to that. So we were here in Illinois until the shelter-in-place order uh, was brought down. And from there, my wife began working from home, and we, we decided to go to Michigan to be with family. Uh, and so at that point, we were already infected. Uh, my wife uh, did also go through this virus, but her symptoms were very mild. She uh, lost her taste uh, and smell, had a little bit of a headache, thought it was a sinus infection, but uh, about a week later, 
after the onset of symptoms, she was okay. Uh, we actually uh, started to experience our symptoms the very same day. So we believe we were infected in Illinois, had no idea as the symptoms would uh, show themselves for several days. So we had traveled to Michigan and it was a, a Sunday afternoon. I was playing a game of basketball. It was a beautiful day. I was outside with my nephew. He's a 16-year-old. He's he's probably six foot two, 240 pounds. So he was uh, he was giving me everything I could take. Uh, I'm six foot five, and I'm I'm about the same weight. But we had a good game of basketball. But I felt really uh really winded, uh, short of breath. Uh, I'm out of shape, but it was irregular. Uh, as I'd play one game and find myself. Uh, just breathing very hard, but it was strange as I didn't feel like I was getting as much oxygen as I needed. Very empty breaths. So uh, as we finished playing basketball later that night, uh, I was around family. It's a blessing. No one in my family outside of my wife uh, has got this virus. Uh, it's a miracle in itself. But as I was um, sitting around the house, it felt like I, I literally could fall over uh, and faint, not because I was um, sleepy tired, but so fatigued, so weak. Uh, my wife took my temperature that night and it was around 101 degrees, uh, nothing crazy, but of course we were aware of the virus. Uh, at that point they didn't know a whole lot or they weren't revealing a whole lot in the media, um, that, you know, anything, any information we could access other than those, um, symptoms of shortness of breath, fatigue, dry cough and fever. So began to think perhaps uh, I've got this virus, but wasn't too sure. It felt a whole lot like the flu. I had the flu, influenza A, uh, the beginning of February, uh, and that was no fun. Uh, I had a high fever, laid in bed for several days, was on antibiotic, was able to beat it. Uh, but this time around, it felt similar. But that shortness of breath, unusual. Uh, it, it, it reminded me of bronchitis. I've had bronchitis a few times in my life. Had pneumonia once or twice. Uh, had the flu. I feel like I, I live every day with a sinus infection. So perhaps I need to come see you. Uh, <laughs> but it was strange from, from the very beginning. I didn't want to minimize the virus. I didn't want to overinflate it and, and be filled with anxiety. Uh, in fact, my brother is a professor at the University of Michigan. He's a mathematician. And uh, strangely enough, a few years ago, he did research on pandemics uh, involving viruses and so forth. And he had, he had instructed our family to take this um, seriously, to, to not uh, minimize it, to not diminish what was happening in our world where a lot of people were. A lot of people were saying, oh, the flu's killing a whole lot more than, than the virus. And that's how it's gonna be. And my brother said, we don't know. Uh, with viruses like this, uh, statistics have shown they, they could be very detrimental to society. So now we're seeing that, but this is uh, over a month ago, March 22nd, when my symptoms started to rise. From there, uh, that entire week, I laid in bed. I quarantined myself uh, as a precautionary measure. If this truly was the virus, I didn't want anyone else to get it. Uh, it was, once again, a strange occurrence. My grandmother and her husband uh, just so happened to be uh, staying with my mother at that point, and that's where we were at. 
So I've got my elderly grandmother and her husband there, and I, I realize if I've got the virus and they contract it, it's dangerous. Absolutely, uh, yeah. The high risk individuals are, you know, of, of main concern. So, so you're playing basketball, and you just developed this shortness of breath, and that felt really atypical. Describe, describe to us, was it really tough to take a deep breath in or out? Was there this burning in your chest? I mean, how did it feel where, you know, even if you weren't uh, moving, right, so you're at rest, how was it feeling to, to get that oxygen into you? It wasn't so much a burning sensation at that point. It was more when I would inhale, it didn't feel like it was doing as much as it would normally do uh, to the point where I was taking deeper breaths and I, I was breathing more often than usually when I'm exhausted or I'm tired from a game. I could take a few drinks of water, uh, begin to breathe um, in a more focused manner and feel that relief come about within a minute or two. But uh, I'd say for at least three to five minutes, I kept breathing, didn't feel like it was doing anything. And so I would say uh, from that point, my oxygen levels were probably decreasing, although I didn't know it. Right. And throughout the week, they would get worse. And how was your fever through the week? Did it kept on, you know, going up and then you would take maybe some medication, whether it be Tylenol or ibuprofen, kind of come down a little and then kind of creep back up again? The very next day after I was playing basketball, I woke up with 104.3 degree fever. That freaked me out. And throughout the week, it remained high until I, I took some Tylenol. Uh, I started that day. I would take it every day. Around Thursday or Friday, my fever actually began to drop to around the 100 degree, 101 degree mark again, which is what it started out as. But my other symptoms were uh, being amplified. Uh, I developed that dry cough. Uh, from the dry cough, there was vomiting. Uh, of course, the chills uh, got worse, even though the fever was improving. Uh, and also there was... Of course, that mucus, the secretions were building up. So around Friday night, that's when I truly started to think this is the virus because I've never experienced uh, all of these symptoms happening at once with one complication or one disease or one virus or one sickness. I was... Uh, coughing up blood at that point with my secretions, uh, just a little bit, but still, um, you know, I thought to myself, perhaps it's, it's a reaction, you know, and with my sinuses, uh, I've, I've coughed up blood before I've sneezed blood before, but, uh, something was telling me it was more than that. And, and, and walk us through. So you're suffering for this week. The symptoms are getting progressively worse. Take us through just sort of your decision-making process, too, in your mind saying, okay, maybe this is, at what point did you say, okay, I think that this is serious enough to where I need to, you know, seek medical attention at an emergency room or hospital? Around Friday, that same day where I was coughing up the blood, I, I thought to myself, if this is more than the flu, I can't afford to wait much longer. I was treating it like the flu or bronchitis as, um, as I've stated before, uh, my experience with influenza A was very recent and, and my physician told me rest, lay in bed. Supportive uh, care, fluids, hydration. 
stay yeah. hydrated. Mm-hmm. But I had done all that, and outside of the, the fever, nothing had improved. In fact, everything had gotten worse. So we began to uh, talk about taking me to the hospital, but uh, between Friday night and Saturday, the temperature had gone down. I think I had a little bit of uh, a clearing for uh, a few hours to where I was feeling a tad bit better. But then Saturday rolled around, and I texted my mother, who's a re- she's a retired nurse, and I said, Mom, I feel like I'm dying. I still have the text message in my phone. Uh, I've taken a screenshot of it uh, so I don't forget that it was you know, the turning point, if you will. So from there, she came home. She listened to my lungs, and she, of course, has been um, distant from the medical field for a little while now, but she began to say, we learned something in, in nursing school uh, because when she listened to the lungs, she didn't hear any buildup. There was no wheezing, but she said, I remember learning about silent lungs, quiet lungs, empty lungs, where even though you can't hear any secretions or you can't hear any buildup, I can tell that your lungs are not operating properly. There's just nothing there. And so she said, we're taking you to the hospital right now. So if mama says it, we're going to do it. Absolutely. Now walk us through. So you're, you're in, you know, respiratory distress, you know, and you have a fever. You're obviously self-isolating yourself. Now you're, now you're, you know, going to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and at the time, you know, you're, you're talking late March. So we're just starting to see, you know, mm-hmm. this surge in patients. Explain to us, walk us through what it what it seemed like when you initially went into the emergency room. I'm assuming, and and what that triage situation looked like, and how you were feeling then. I was very confused when we arrived at the hospital. For some reason or the other, I, I was not made aware of the fact that I would have to go in alone. Although it makes sense now, um, my mother and my wife had to I wait on the car. And, They ended up waiting there for a few hours because I think they also were unaware of what was going on. To backtrack a little bit, that Saturday morning we had called the hospital. Even though I was feeling a little bit better, uh, there was a turn uh, sometime Sunday morning, early afternoon, to where I felt led to call um, the hospital. Uh, It's Hurley Medical Center. It's in Flint, Michigan. My father actually was the chief financial officer there for several years. My stepmother was a high-ranking administrator, so we're very familiar. One of the highest-ranking hospitals in the Midwest. We felt comfortable. Um, that's the place I was born, so it was never in doubt where I was going to go if I needed to um, be checked into a hospital. But we called because it was so early on in the process. The state of Michigan didn't have that many tests available for hospitals. Uh, the hospital uh, had very few. There were several hospitals in the area who didn't have one single test available. Uh, they would refer you to another hospital. I called, and they said the earliest we can test you will be Monday morning, which, as I've said on other broadcasts, it, had I waited for treatment or to be tested Monday morning, uh, even the doctors who, who would uh, care for me, they said it, it could have been uh, even more serious than it ended up being. Who knows if we would have been able to uh, – to save you. So, uh, they said Monday morning, but of course my mother looked, uh, listened to my lungs, went to the hospital, confused, uh, go to, uh, go to the ER, get checked in. 
and as I'm checked in, the nurse tells me we can only test medical professionals and persons with underlying health conditions. And they looked at my uh, my background, uh, all my medical history, and I've uh, it's pretty it's fairly clean. I don't I've never had any serious conditions. Uh, of course, uh, you know my immune system's been compromised before. I've, I've had shingles twice before the age of 20, which at the time the doctor said you're you're one in a million uh, to have shingles twice before. Uh, truly reaching adulthood. But other than that, they said, you're good, so we're not sure if we can test you, but we're going to do some chest x-rays. Uh, she, she brought the text ray um, technician in. He, he performed the x-ray, left the room. Uh, they went to get the results. She brought the results back in, and her eyes were lit up like a deer in headlights. She looked me straight in the face, said, have you ever smoked? Do you have asthma? Do you have problems breathing? I said, I've never had problems breathing, never smoked a day in my life, never had asthma. And she said, well, I've never seen lungs that look this bad, uh, comparing to, I'm sure, several smokers that she's had as patients uh, and others with asthma. She said, your lungs are destroyed. So at that point, I'm in shock. I'm still confused, but my heart drops because I realized that, you know, it, it's developed into uh, something I never imagined it could develop into. So she then says, we're going to test you. They test me. But at the time, testing was not, um, it was not quickly done. There wasn't a quick turnaround. So it would take uh, between three to five days for them to receive the results. But uh, nevertheless, they checked me in. And so that's where, that's where my hospital journey began. But as I said, it was shocking, it was confusing, not just for myself, but also uh, the physicians there. Absolutely. Uh, now take us through that too, because what I really want to, you're, you're explaining a wonderful picture and time course of the initial symptoms, this sort of, you know, developing of symptoms at home, coming in even some frustration too of, you know, how do we get a test? Where do we get a test? And now, you know, you're separated from your family and you're alone in the emergency room and the doctors are coming in and seeing this chest x-ray that's just not congruent with your history, with your lack of smoking, you're in good health, you're young, um, no history of asthma or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, you're a non-smoker. And so walk us through now, in terms of your symptoms, how are you breathing now? Talking with the doctors, how are they? How are they? How are they addressing your disposition of where you're going to be going? Did they feel, based on your assessment, that this is a that you were in a critical condition? Did they felt like you were going to be in the ICU, or did they feel like you were more appropriate for, you know, a medical floor bed? Initially, there was no talk of me being tra- transferred to the ICU. When I first arrived, they put me on assisted oxygen. Uh, I was wearing the oxygen mask. But from what I can remember, now realize my memory uh, is completely wiped uh, from uh, Saturday night until I was off the ventilator. So truly, I only remember the first room I was ever put in, in the ER. Later that night, I was transferred to the ICU. So my story in large part, has been pieced together from family's accounts of talking to me because I did talk to them quite a bit um, the next day, which would have been Sunday. Mm-hmm. And I've looked at text messages. But what, what I've been able to see is I was transferred to ICU 
later that night because even though I was on assisted oxygen, my pulse ox levels were still going down. So they realized uh, the lungs, they're overworking at this point or, or they're not working as they should, uh, whatever the case. Uh, and so Sunday was a battle. I've looked at text messages and I was starting to talk to the doctors about the potential of being put on a ventilator. Now realize I was one of the very first COVID patients. They had just set up a COVID unit. They called it ICCU, even though it was ICU because um, there was a created unit. So uh, there were doctors, nurses being pulled from different parts of the hospital that usually um, weren't, you know, a part of the ICU. But the conversations on Sunday show I was being briefed on the potential of being put on a ventilator. I was more of the impression I could beat this on my own with assisted oxygen. I could keep on coughing up the secretions and we'll get through this because to me, my confusion led me to resort back to my belief of, Hey, I beat the flu before I beat bronchitis. Let's treat it like that. Uh, but thankfully the physicians uh, were a little bit out in front and they knew uh, if my oxygen levels kept um, lowering, I'd have to be put on that ventilator. But um, I very much wanted to stay in control. And, and walk us through as you're as you're being prepared. And you'd mentioned obviously that there's some confusion, especially when you have the lack of oxygenation. In now that in hindsight that you've talked with your wife and your other family members, how was these sort of discussions with the treatment team and your wife? Um, and, and your decision makers too of, you know, getting updates and communicating with the treatment team and early family involvement. How, how did you feel it was now that you're, now that you're out of this picture now? Take it, walk us through. I'm trying to, you know, for our listeners, you know, this can be a really difficult time because quite frankly, your family's not there. Mm-hmm. And so you're really relying upon essentially phone conversations with the treatment team in terms of consistent updates and, that communication is really imperative too, as you know, some, so is, you know, your condition is worsening rapidly. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. My wife would call up to the hospital quite often, as often as they would let her. But even then she wouldn't necessarily talk to my attending nurse or, or my physician. She would talk to someone who could read my charts or, or get information um, from where my vitals were at the last checkup. So uh, quite honestly, the communication aspect between my wife and uh, the hospital wasn't as great uh, as I believe it probably is now as they're, they're um, improving the communication measures with iPads and so forth uh, with patients and family. But they were definitely trying to uh, tell my family what was going on, how uh, I should consider being put on the ventilator. But they also said we cannot we cannot force uh, a patient to be put on a ventilator unless they become unconscious. Then then we will. And they said it's it's Andrew's decision to make. Uh, so it, it was difficult. There was back and forth, uh, and and that is truly uh, you know, what makes. COVID uh, interesting 
is there's a lot of there's there's a circle if you will there's a triangle you know i'm getting told information and i'm i'm replying but then my family's being told that same information they're replying and then it's i was somewhat the messenger uh if you will and as the the patient that made it even more trying because i'm trying i'm attempting to focus on my health uh, but monday morning that's when it was apparent my pulse ox levels were in the low 80s and the physicians told me if your levels drop to the 70s you could potentially start suffering from organ failure that let me know um, a decision needed to be made and then i received some advice from a family friend who's a pediatrician in michigan and he he told me to get put on the ventilator so uh so i was receiving outside advice uh, as well which uh, i'm thankful for but uh, the doctors were telling me it at that point it's it's almost inevitable it's only going to help you uh so i'm not sure if that answers the question completely no it absolutely does and 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 walk us through too because you know you're a person of faith you're a minister Mm -hmm. as you're making these sort of decisions to Mm -hmm. you know receive mechanical ventilation uh, Mm -hmm. what's going through your mind there's definitely a battle i'm all about uh receiving medical intervention i'm not the type of minister who says that, uh, you know, you should pray only and not receive um, medical help or not to take medicine. I, b- I believe that um, medicine is essential for many needs. So uh, I was not going to refuse the ventilator if, if they truly said this is going to save your life or any type of medication they could save my life. But there was a battle. Uh, there was a battle in my faith, of course, with the fear. Uh, I would text my wife and say, I don't want to die. I'd say I don't want to. Um, I don't want this to be it. I want to see my boy again. I want to see you again. I want to live a long life with you. So there were definitely uh, there was a battle psychologically. Uh, truly, at that point, I was not thinking to pray. As uh, there, perhaps I did. No one knows. No one was in that room with me, and I don't remember even being in that room. So perhaps I was praying, but. From what I recall, it was more so uh, talking to my wife, and it was definitely those um, impending feelings of doom uh, or uh, of death. Um, but my wife, thankfully, uh, being at home, she was able to pray. She was able to reach out to family and friends, and throughout the week, we would find there were hundreds of thousands of people praying for me. And it could be even more than that, but we... We know that um, prayer chains were set up. That's the power of technology, social media. So even while I'd be put on this ventilator, uh, there were a lot of people who were believing in me and, and backing me up in prayer. And so it's truly uplifting. And so um, how long were you on the ventilator for? And walk us through, you know, how you were extubated and what you felt, you know, the first time you, you remember, you know, waking up, being off the ventilator. I was on the ventilator for seven days. The first several days, the physicians would tell my wife that he's not doing bad. He's not necessarily doing good. He's, he's just very steady. Around Thursday, they told my wife he's doing better than any of the other patients in the unit who are on a ventilator. Uh, from my recollection, I was either the first or the second patient put on a ventilator Uh I would end up being on the second patient off of ventilator when I was extubated. 
around Friday, there was a change in my condition. Uh, so you go from Thursday to Friday, Thursday, they're giving my wife good news. Friday, they tell my wife, we're going to do a spontaneous breathing test where they're going to take me off the ventilator uh, quick, just for a little while to see if I could breathe on my own. Problem was, I wasn't able to breathe on my own without the ventilator uh, to the point where my pulse ox levels dropped lower than they had been. Uh, my vitals, my heart rate uh, completely tanked to the point where they, they were concerned that it, it was going to either be the end or my condition was going to be one where I'd have to be in the ventilator for uh, an extremely long amount of time. Uh, they put me back on the ventilator. They turned up the uh, settings, but all of the readings, uh, all those um, fancy names for um, how they were able to uh, see where I was at, uh, they were not um, where they wanted it to be. And they told my parents that. They told my wife. They said he's got uh, to, to be real. And I'm thankful they were. There's no need to sugarcoat it. Uh, they told my family, based off of what we've seen at other hospitals and even with other patients now, he's probably got less than a 50% chance of coming off this ventilator. We now have done research, um, different family members, myself, to see that I had probably had around a 30% chance of survival at this point. But between Friday and Saturday, uh, I say the miraculous. I'm a pastor. I believe in medicine. I believe... Uh, you know, medicine had something to do with it, but I also believe that God had a bigger deal to do with it as 30% chance of survival. Uh, those aren't good odds, but um, throughout the night, my condition began to drastically improve. They also put me in the prone position, which I would say had something to do with it, but come around Saturday and the doctor and my nurses are scratching their head because they could not explain my turnaround. Uh, they realized I'm, I'm a young patient. I'm only 29, so that helps me out uh, in certain aspects. I don't have any problems with my kidneys or my heart. In fact, they said all my organs were perfect, uh, which I'm grateful for because now I know that. But they were amazed. They couldn't understand it. They couldn't explain it. I know what happened. I believe that God healed me, but I'm also grateful for their care. Uh, I had wonderful physicians the entire time, and I do believe being put in the prone position helped. My wife has even said that. Uh, Absolutely. We've, we've, there's been tremendous data on early proning. In fact, they have now proning teams in yeah. these COVID ICUs, uh, working with patients who are on the vents to, to prone to as well. Um, Andrew, did you receive any um, uh, investigational drugs during your treatment? Um, we've seen in the media too, remdesivir, and there's all these. You know, we've we've seen also hydroxychloroquine, and so were, were you were you privy of, of now knowing? Did you receive any uh, investigational drugs during your ICU stay? Yeah, I did receive the hydroxychloroquine. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, the governor of Michigan had recently approved that drug. At first, uh, she was against it, but it was approved before uh, I was uh, given that drug. And of course, I also uh, received the, the Z-pack of antibiotics sure. while I was uh, on the ventilator. 
Um, and my family was okay with it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, and again, you're, you are one of the first cases too, and mm-hmm. that we now know the VA study too, uh, regarding hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin showing no benefit. In fact, um, Mm-hmm. And and so now you're, it's Saturday, you had a rapid progression where it becomes better. You've, you've mm-hmm. turned the corner here. Um, do you remember when you were extubated and when you when you came back um, to, to your senses? That Saturday continued to improve. Sunday morning they did another spontaneous test, and I was able to uh, succeed. With that test, I breathed the max amount of time, so they were ecstatic. They told my family, he's, he's on the right track. Monday morning comes around. Uh, they tell my wife they're going to try one more test. If all goes well, who knows? I might come off the ventilator. Did the test, same results. And next thing you know, uh, they're reducing sedation, and there's an uh, iPad in front of my face. Uh, I wouldn't say that's the first uh, memory I have. The first memory I have is... Uh, truly recalling some of the dreams, hallucinations, whatever you want to call them. They were as vivid as anything I've ever experienced. I believe they most likely came about uh, when I was um, coming off the ventilator. Uh, so coming out of that, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, scared, if you will, because those dreams uh, were, because they were so vivid and some of them were uh, really um, scary in, in themselves. Uh, I come off the ventilator. Everything's fuzzy. Uh, I can barely open my eyes. My wife actually has a picture of when they were FaceTiming me, and you could tell I could barely open my eyelids, and uh, it, it looked um, like I was uh, just struggling to do so. But I was able to acknowledge my wife was there. I was able to uh, not necessarily talk because I had everything still hooked up to me, but um, my nurse was telling my wife and my mother that, hey, he's coming off, we're waiting for the doctor, but he'll be off here pretty soon, and then we'll FaceTime you. From that point on, though, and it needs to be said, I went through the most trying two hours of my life, the most pain, the most discomfort I've ever experienced. Because they've removed sedation. I'm, I'm awake now. I'm not necessarily 100% coherent. Everything's fuzzy. I can't really make out um, where I'm at. I thought I was at Rush Hospital, uh, either Chicago or Rush Copley in Oswego. That's the hospital we usually go to here in the area. I uh, didn't know what was going on. Didn't know what planet I was on. <laughs> Uh, I thought I was in some type of secret lab, if you will. It was strange. Uh, and those hallucinations and the medication were truly messing with me. But my nurse was awesome. I, I call her my guardian angel. She was so comforting. Uh, and that's truly what you need when you're coming out of that. And I'm very high strung. I'm type A personality. Uh, I'm the type where I, I do, um, you know, really kind of have really high highs and really low lows. And so... If anything, it's a miracle that I didn't freak out and they had to re-sedate me, uh, which can be an issue uh, with um, patients who are intubated. So at that point, she's talking to me, doing a great job. She says, we're, we're, we're waiting for the doctor. Uh, the doctor's got to check on you, but 
if, if the doctor gives the thumbs up, you're, you're coming off this. I, I'm gaining a little bit of uh, movement with my arms. Uh, at that point, I couldn't feel my legs, uh, which I didn't realize that. But later on, I, w- I would you know, realize my legs weren't doing a whole lot um, after I was extubated. But the issue was, of course, I can start to notice that I've, I've got a lot of stuff in my mouth uh, through my nose. Uh, in fact, they say when I did the first spontaneous test, I was fighting. Uh, so there was a little bit of a rip in my nose. I've, I've got this little scar there. Um, I'm a fighter. What can I say <laughs> uh, for better or worse? But um, two hours uh, and the doctor ended up being 40 minutes late. Uh, my nurse, just, she comforted me. And I was looking at, at a di- digital clock. I could start to make out the clock. And I would use my arm to do a little bit of sign language, if you will, trying to point at stuff. And I was telling her I'm frustrated we were, I was supposed to be off the ventilator 30 minutes ago, uh, but she kept comforting me. And I don't remember the doctor even coming in. So I don't know if they resedated me um, to, to get everything out. I would assume so uh, because I probably wouldn't have been okay <laughs> with uh, them digging out all the tubes and so forth. But uh, those are my, my first um, memories of coming off. So you're off the ventilator and you're kind of coming back. And there's likely a transition where they give you back supplemental oxygen, either through nasal cannula or mask. And was it at that point where you said, okay, I've gone through being on a mechanical ventilator for days. I'm I'm, I'm coming to my senses now too. What was the first thought that went through your mind in terms of how you were feeling then versus, you know, when you were walking into the, or, or, or wheeled into the emergency room? I still didn't understand completely uh, the the process of being put on a ventilator until I believe it had to have been one of my nurses began to give me some information as to how long I was on the ventilator, uh, why I was there, uh, debriefing me about everything. But I was still very scared because although I couldn't remember a whole lot uh, leading up to being uh, intubated, uh, while I was quarantined to a bedroom, I was reading up on uh, hospital patients with COVID and even those who had to be put on a ventilator. So in a sense, I was preparing myself having no idea that I actually would be put on a ventilator. But I was hearing stories, uh, and this is the week leading up, of how some patients who would come off the ventilator uh, would have to be put back on. Uh, sadly, we have uh, family friends and who, who they themselves have come off the ventilator. It seems like they're on the right track, and they've been they've had to be put back on the ventilator. We've actually lost a, uh, someone who's connected to our family, and there's another individual who potentially within the next day or two, they were brought off the ventilator, put back on it. They've been on it for about 30 days now, and it's it's not looking good for them. So, And that's what they're seeing too, Andrew, that you know you have this period of time where they worsen, they get better, and then all of a sudden, you know, very, very quickly, they they actually, you know, get far worse, and they're back on the ventilator. It, it, tell me, I mean, what what was that psychological warfare like in your in, in your mind? You know, it it was it was wild in a sense that those hallucinations uh, were truly freaking me out, as I've never hallucinated before, and 
not just the hallucinations, but I could tell uh, this was a different situation. This is uh, truly my first ever hospital stay uh, over the course of 29 years uh, that I can recall other than uh, the birth of my, my son. So never been in the ICU before. Could tell the nurses were a little bit on edge, uh, whereas I, I've, I've been around nurses before at urgent care or other places, and you could tell this was different. Of course, they had to wear a whole lot of um, that protectional gear, uh, but the battle was real. Uh, I, I felt very, uh, once again, confused. Uh, my, my nerves were very irritated. I even told my wife that later. Um, the nurses said, hey, do you want us to turn on the TV? Uh, do you want this, that, or the other? I said, no. Like, it, it all is, is irritating me. I, tr um, really, I just want to lay here. And I did, but in a sense, it felt like a prison. It felt like a jail cell as I'm hallucinating. You know, stuff is flying off the wall. And I'm literally looking around trying to regain consciousness, which usually you can uh, – if you don't have a bunch of drugs in your system, uh, but there was no relief. I think that is what uh, was making it so difficult psychologically is there was no relief. Of course, I was on the, the Christmas tree, if you will, the assisted oxygen, um, which was scary. Uh, but yeah, psychologically there was no relief. I still really hadn't talked to, family all that much. They did let me FaceTime my wife after I was off. Uh, so uh, she didn't say a whole lot other than, hey, it's good to see you, love you. And and that was it. And so you're getting better. And then they're obviously, you know, as your condition improves, they're transferring you up to the medical floor. Mm -hmm. and, and so then I'm sure that you're feeling not only a sense of relief, but also, you know, tackling what's ahead of you too. Take us through you know, both physically how you're feeling, mentally how you're feeling after that, you know, grueling battle in the ICU and, and, mm -hmm. and walk us through, you know, even getting home, you know, how did, how mm -hmm. did this, how did this transpire and how you felt? Yeah. Well, I felt relief through prayer. Once again, uh, that was my, my main relief, uh, was able to talk to family more. Uh, the biggest issue was I wouldn't sleep for three straight days. They tried to give me different medication. Uh, nothing was working because every time I closed my eyes, I began to hallucinate. Uh, it, it was uh, unlike anything I can even compare to. Uh, so uh, my eyes were open uh, for 72 hours straight. But my condition was improving. My oxygen levels continued to rise. Uh, thankfully, although I knew that some individuals coming off the ventilator would have to be put back on, I was not aware of any you know, chance of suffering from a stroke or a secondary infection, which if, had I had known that while I was in the ICU, my anxiety probably would have lifted up to a different level. But between Monday and Tuesday, they kept on saying everything is going as planned. Tuesday, I am released to a normal, uh, normal room. Uh, they took all the assisted oxygen off, which that was freaky. As I could tell, it was there for a reason. Why are you taking it off? And even when they were transferring me, I understood that they needed more. Um, they needed more rooms. You know, my room was um, 
was vital to somebody else receiving care. So that's why, you know, I had a piece about it. But at the same time, I'm thinking to myself, uh, ICU's the best place to be to get uh, the most attention. You know, my nurse was around me as much as she could be, um, several nurses. And, and they would come in and they would say, you're a miracle. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and it was not a matter of faith or religion. It was just a matter of them truly um, looking at me and saying, hey, we didn't know if you were going to be here. Uh, but the fact that they called me a miracle, uh, that boosted my faith, that, that boosted my fight, if you will. Uh, and I truly was fighting um, as far as I, I'm not a fan of medical attention. I've never been a fan of needles, et cetera, et cetera. But at this point, I said, whatever you've got to do, do it. Uh, but Tuesday rolls around. Um, I'm doing better, but still not sleeping. Uh, I, of course, um, trying to, to flush out my system. Uh, I had a lot of diarrhea. That was a, a big issue. In fact, they would have to uh, do a test uh, on Wednesday morning uh, to try to determine if, if that um, diarrhea was coming from the virus or if there was another infection present. Uh, unfortunately, that test took a long time uh, to come back. Uh, it would be about 24 hours or else there was potential for me being released from the hospital on Wednesday because um, when they came to check uh, the physical therapist and occupational therapist, they were, they were just blown away with how fast I was improving. Uh, in fact, uh, they said they'd never seen anything like it. Monday, when I was off the ventilator, when I was starting to regain consciousness, I'm just laying there in the bed, uh, recovering. I could barely move my legs. If, if any, you know, if there was any movement at all, it was very little arms, barely, uh, they had to assist me in anything that I did by Tuesday. I was starting to gain more strength by Wednesday. I'm walking by myself to the bathroom, uh, without any help. I mean, they would stand beside me, but I was doing it all on my own. Uh, arms were functioning, uh, properly. But I would have to wait until Thursday to go home because of that test they did uh, on my stool. Uh, and then Thursday, uh, they came in and they did the final checks. And once again, uh, I actually didn't do as well Thursday with my physical therapy and occupational therapy. I, I did well enough, but uh, we all knew it was not a matter of me not improving. Um, I simply hadn't slept in 72 hours. So my body was very weak. So, you know, you're... you're Recovering to where you're being discharged, so you're going home. Mm -hmm. it, it, two, two, two follow-up questions on this. One, mm -hmm. what was it like to just come home and see your wife and see your son? And two, what's your recovery been like since you've been at home? Mm -hmm. Coming home, there, uh, there was still some nervousness as when you're at the hospital, uh, you've got professionals all around you. And this is not to um, say anything against my mom's uh, knowledge concerning, uh, you know, the medical profession, but uh, COVID is still very uh, new to everyone. So I was nervous in that sense, but psychologically I needed to go home. I was up all night Wednesday. Um, thankfully my wife several times in the middle of the night, she would take my call and we would talk for hours and I was telling her, I, I can't be in here any longer. I know that perhaps it, it may help me. It may not. Uh, my, my, my physician ended up saying, you know, there's really no difference at this point from you being here and being at home. You're off oxygen. Uh, the medication at that point 
um, was wearing off to where I wasn't hallucinating anymore. Uh, everything looked okay. So they said, we understand. Uh, so psychologically, it was, it was huge to see my wife again. Uh, that was, um, yeah, it, it was a reunion unlike any other. Went to see my son. Uh, I had tears streaming down my face. Uh, but when I got home, I still played it safe. And, and the, you the self-isolate when you came, when you went home for, yep. for a time. Yeah. My wife was in the room with me. Uh, she was wearing a mask. Uh, she had already gone through the, uh, the virus herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so other than that, I was not around anyone. I remained in the bedroom for about three to four days. And at that point we realized, um, you know, I probably could, could be around people. Yeah. I still wear my mask. Uh, and about seven days later, um, I still wear my mask, uh, but, uh, I don't know if it was seven or eight days and I, I, it wasn't as big of a deal anymore, but those first few days, uh, physically still felt like my, my left lung was, you know, dropping, <laughs> uh, in, in a sense, it was very weak. The right lung, uh, as I had double pneumonia, the right lung had improved dramatically and, and said the left lung takes longer to heal as it's, it's closer to the heart and so forth. But, uh, that pain continued to improve as far as uh, there was relief from it um, as several days went by. Now, even to this day, I still feel uh, a little bit of aching there uh, on the left side of my chest. But compared to where I was at two or three weeks ago, um, we're making great progress. Uh, I would say the hardest part of recovery so far has been the psychological aspect. I'm someone who has a degree in psychology and then I've got a master's in counseling. So I know uh, a lot of what comes along with the stress that I endured, the anxiety, even I had a follow-up visit with my primary care doctor the other day. And she was saying, Andrew, while you were on that ventilator, although you were unconscious, uh, you were very much going through everything psychologically, uh, mentally, you know, uh, and, and it's true. Uh, even that fight that I had on Friday morning when they did that spontaneous test, everything came together to create uh, this ball of stress. And, and I would say there's going to be a lot of patients post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, as, as you would get from other situations in life. First few days at home, I'd wake up uh, and have these hallucinations, night terrors, uh, anxiety attacks, whatever you want to call them. I would wake up and I would I would turn to my wife and, and be shaking in fear and I'd say, oh, they need to put me back on the ventilator. I need to be put back on the ventilator. I, or I'd say, this hospital bed is really uncomfortable. You know, I'm sore and uh, talking nonsense. Uh, and that's slowly started to um, come down. But a few nights ago, even, I, I had a little scare um, where I woke up and my chest was hurting a little bit. And I was telling my wife that, uh, but uh, my physician, uh, the follow-up physician from the hospital there, so not my primary care doctor, but he said, you're looking at about four to six months of recovery. And my primary care doctor said at least three to four months. Uh, Her rule of thumb is for every day you're on a hospital bed, that's a week of recovery. Um, So uh, she also said, you know, if you're not, uh, doing better with these anxiety attacks within six to eight weeks to consider counseling, which I'm a counselor. I'm all for it. Uh, I'm not afraid to do that. But 
Uh, of course, not sure what my immunity is like at this point. Uh, they told me, which you would know better than anyone, uh, they told me your immune system's most likely down. Uh, concerning this virus, there's no knowledge if it comes back, if it mutates, whatever the case is, so you need to lay low. I've tried to do that, but my wife's been my sheriff, but I'm I'm a very much uh, a to-do to list person. Uh, I like to always be on the go, always active. I don't, I don't like sitting around. So it's been difficult. Uh, mowed my yard the other day. I mowed the backyard one day, the front yard the other, because after doing one half of the yard, it felt like I ran a marathon. And so I've been playing it safe, but I developed a little bit of a, a cold, uh, or it could be allergies or whatever's going on with this bipolar weather we have here in, in Chicago. And that that's what caused irritation in the chest, I believe, but it could also very much so be a uh, scar tissue. Yeah. Uh, from- have you, have you uh, thought about, or have your doctors offered the test for, you know, COVID-19 antibodies for you? Have, have they offered that at a follow-up visit yet? They, they didn't instruct me to do it. Uh, but my wife is actually getting that test done today. Great. Uh, the main test my primary care doctor wanted was uh, another x-ray of my chest. So Absolutely, there's a baseline yes. uh, to work from over the next few months. But And even concerning uh, giving plasma, I asked her about that. Once again, I don't like needles. I've never given blood in my life until I was in the hospital. Uh, but she said, uh, that's up to me. Uh, according to her research and, and professionals she's talked to at Rush, there's no hard evidence right now that plasma is doing a whole lot for uh, COVID patients. Uh, they believe it could, um, based off of other viruses and how it helped uh, with those patients. But she said that's up to you. She didn't say you need to do it or you don't need to do it, uh, which um, you know I think my mind's a little changed as far as. Um, if it's truly shown that it's helping patients, then I'd probably look it up and do it. We're, well, well, firstly, we're glad your wife has given her antibodies, too, to see what levels are at. I think we've talked, we have a show coming up, too, just in terms of how we're going to get back to work. And mm-hmm. the more people that are going to be donating their blood to figure out what antibody levels are present, not only in people, but if they are protective, what level would that be? So we can get back in the community, go back to church and mm-hmm. our workplace and the grocery stores and when we can feel, you know, safe again, too. But overall, um, Andrew, your story is very, very touching and moving. Um, you've, you've walked us through just such a great, um, you know, vivid memories that you have from your symptoms leading up to your hospitalization, what happened during your hospitalization and coming back from you know, near death. And we truly appreciate your time. It's a, it's a, it's a very uplifting story. It just not only embodies that sense of not only you as a patient, but your supportive network around you, the Mm -hmm. pivotal healthcare workers and professionals that were around you. um, But also highlighting too, just what we don't know about COVID-19 and how you just being a 29 year old healthy male um, who was just, you know, doing your own uh, precautionary, you know, behaviors. And next thing you know, you're having symptoms and you go through this harrowing experience. What also is comforting to hear too, is that, you know, you're on the path to recovery now. 
And that, that recovery is not just instantaneous when people see, oh, you're off the vent and you're home, that's it. No, the recovery takes time and you're, you're, you're following that too. So we are, we are very grateful for you to be here today with us. Um, and your story is very uplifting and, and we thank you for that. Yeah, thank you for letting me share it. We appreciate Pastor Andrew Caulfield being on our show today, um, giving his absolutely remarkable story of COVID-19 and um, how he endured um, absolutely harrowing symptoms and his ICU stay and, you know, coming back from COVID-19 and, and getting back on his road to recovery. So we are very fortunate to interview Pastor Caulfield um, and are really grateful for his uh, time today and really um, uh, rooting for him and his recovery too as well. We hope you enjoyed um, this episode of, uh, uh, of Dr. Dave on Call talking with a COVID-19 survivor, Pastor Andrew Caulfield. Um, if you have any questions or concern, please reach out to us. So you can tweet us at Dr. Dave on Call, uh, and you can email us too at hello at drdaveoncall.com or call us too. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, stay safe and healthy. Take care.